Welcome to The Middle of Things, a philosophy podcast by me, Rodrigo. And me, Kenny. We're recording in San Francisco. All right, let's get right into it. So last time we read... Uh, I've already forgotten. What did we read? We read Frank Jackson's Armchair Metaphysics. That's right. And Gil Harmon's Doubts About Conceptual Analysis. Right. And this week, uh, in continuation, uh, we read... What did we read? We read Analyticity Reconsidered by Paul Bogosian. Right, because, uh, well, I mean, after after the the Jackson, we, we, we find we have to reconsider analyticity, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, well, uh, so a big um, theme in Jackson was trying to get away from a posteriori necessities in favor of a priori arguments um, f- uh, for conceptual analysis. And so this paper is about um, analyticity and what it can do for the a priori. Yeah, so um, historically, uh, in the early 20th century, um, analyticity was uh, sort of an inheritance from Kant, right? And, yeah. And the idea was that uh, you could get truth by definition, pretty much, or by conceptual analysis. Um, but uh, in the mid-century, uh, Van Quine uh, sort of... Uh, challenged that thought uh right and, and more or less demolished it for very many people uh including myself i i, I give up on yeah that. and me as well um not not that i was around in the mid-century but oh uh, no <laughs> but after reading quine <laughs> after reading quine uh, uh i yeah i completely changed my my perspective but uh but now it seems like we need to recover it and um and that's what this paper is all about. Uh, Paul Bogosian at NYU wrote this paper in the mid '90s, '94, I think. '96, '96, and um, and the the recovery of the history that that from with which he constructs the argument is pretty vast. This whole paper is a beast, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Kenny and I have been joking that this should have been a whole book. Um, yeah, I mean, each, each section could have easily been, like, a whole chapter or two. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, after a lot of preparation, we've got through it. We got through it and uh, found it persuasive, actually. Yeah, there was a lot There was a lot of good stuff in the paper. Um, and there was also a lot um, left to explore um, as well. Um, I, which is I, exciting, I think. Oh, this is... No, this is great. I mean, yeah, I love it. Uh, <laughs> I want to start with um, the quote... Uh, a quote from Bogosian, where sure. he recounts uh, what what we wanted from a priori knowledge in the past. So he says, the history of philosophy has known a number of answers to uh, the problem of, it says to this problem, what would that problem be? The a priori? The, yeah, I suppose. I'll just start over. The history of philosophy has known a number of answers to this problem, among which the following has had considerable influence. We are equipped with a special evidence-gathering faculty of intuition distinct from the standard five senses. By exercising this faculty, we are able to know a priori such truths as those of mathematics and logic. The central impetus behind the analytic explanation of the a priori is a desire to explain the possibility of a priori knowledge without having to postulate such a special faculty, one that has never been described in satisfactory terms. Uh, You know, it's only recently that I uh, found out that that intuition is an older word for sensation. Um, yeah. So, so really, what this is in reference to is something like the, 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 the intellectual sense, like 
the platonic mind's eye into the forms, uh, which I also discovered recently is described by Descartes as the common sense. Right, yeah, I think the idea was that there was this faculty of intuition which grasped the common sensibles, as they called them. <laughs> yeah, so it's brilliant. I love it. But of course, uh, it's a metaphor, and uh, you can't very well talk about um, our access to logical truth by way of a figurative metaphor of perception. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's not gonna work. Yeah, it's it's the it's a mere beginning at best. <laughs> so so what followed the beginning? Um, it was the linguistic theory of necessity, was it? Right. Yeah. So I mean, this, that's the linguistic theory of necessity, which comes in the early twentieth century, is um, an attempt to get past um, the sort of pseudoscience of positing this faculty of intuition. Um, and what it comes down to is uh, that you analyze the logical form of the sentence uh, and, and substitute synonyms for synonyms and if you have a logical truth then it is both uh, necessary and a priori by way of analysis you have an identity of analyticity a priority and, and necessity. necessity right and yeah and this was thought to domesticate those concepts both epistemologically and metaphysically, right. to make them palatable for the empiricist. Which is where Boghossian comes in. So now he wants to explode this notion that uh, what works for metaphysical necessity would work for epistemic... I'm oh, sorry, not necessity, analyticity. Right. <laughs> he, wants to, he wants to separate, actually, three ways. He wants to separate uh, epistemic analyticity, metaphysical analyticity, and semantic analyticity. Right, yeah. Right. To say nothing of Carnap analyticity. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then there's Frege analyticity, <laughs> Carnap analyticity, Bogosian yeah. analyticity. Yeah, pretty much. Well, actually, he doesn't, he, doesn't he doesn't name his own. Yeah. No, but perhaps we can come yeah, up with one actually, for him. Yeah, actually, we may as well, right? Because at the end, he does propose yet another way of doing it. So yeah. we'll call it Bogosian analyticity. Sounds good by me. All right, good. So let's, okay, let's let's quiz each other. So what is, what is metaphysical analyticity? Right, so anal metaphysical analyticity is... Um, what is meant by uh, a truth by virtue of meaning um, if by that you mean that a statement is made true by its meaning owes its truth value completely to its meaning right yeah exactly uh, in other words not at all to the facts right um, yeah there's nothing extra linguistic about it so for instance I might have the truth that everything is identical to itself yeah and that would be true in virtue of the meanings of the words everything is identical etc uh, whereas an alternative view if you deny the metaphysical analyticity thesis is that it's made true by all the things right. that are identical that to be being all identical those to themselves. same things <laughs> um, right um, or to give another example which I think is in the paper uh, something like snow is white as no, snow is white or snow is not white or something like that. Right. Yeah, and exactly. That's not made true by its, uh, you know, law of excluded middle disjunctive form. But it's, yeah, it's exactly. not just because it looks like P or not P. Yeah, it's not because, just its syntax. It's but also... because of the snow and yeah. because of the white things. Right. And the things that aren't white, too. Yeah, exactly. And then you add it up and it, it's true. Yeah. So, okay, so, so much for metaphysical analyticity. Epistemic analyticity is distinct. Epistemic analyticity is, well, first of all, it's an epistemic notion, so it concerns knowledge, it concerns what we can know. Right. 
Yeah, so um, what it is is it's um, basically a justification in virtue of grasping the meaning of your of your the terms that you're using, right? So it's when a statement that you make when you're justified in holding that statement true based on your based on your grasping of the meanings of the terms used. So one's about truth, one is about justification. Yeah, exactly. And That's then there's exactly the semantic right. analyticity as well. Right. I don't remember that one as well. That is just Frege analyticity. Ah, okay, right. Okay, so, well, or rather, Frege analyticity is one species of semantic analyticity because there's also the Carnap one and then the uh, Pagosian yes, one. Yes, you're, you're right. right. Yeah, right. 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 Okay, so then the idea is, um, can we get epistemic analyticity without having to have metaphysical analyticity? And Pagosian says yes and takes us there by first exploring Frege analyticity. So Frege's notion was, what was it? I think I said it earlier. You, you take a sentence, yeah. you substitute synonyms for synonyms, and then check for logical truth. Uh, Frege also just took logical truth for granted. So, um, Yeah, so there might be something there as well. It, yeah, it, it might leave uh, something unexplained. Right. But actually, even before... Um, getting into Frege analyticity, the point of uh, separating these two, the first two, metaphysical and epistemic analyticity, is not just because one ought to do that uh, <laughs> in, in keeping with uh, making distinctions as philosophers do, but, um, but because it's the epistemic notion that can provide um, a, uh, a grounding for a priori knowledge. You can know something a priori just in case uh, it's an epistemic analyticity. If it's something that you have justification in holding true based on your understanding the meanings of the term, of the terms. Assuming that the grasping of the meanings doesn't require anything a posteriori or something. After the knowledge of the meanings themselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. So... So to restate, basically, it, it allows us to give up on metaphysical, metaphysical analyticity and still get an a priori yeah, exactly. uh, knowledge. Yeah, right, which is what we wanted for the earlier paper. So that's good. Yeah. Um, okay, so then uh, enter Quine. Right. Uh, so um, Quine wrote a series of papers, uh, most famously Two Dogmas, but also accompanied for the purposes of this uh, argument by two papers about Carnap, and and then the book word and object yeah uh, actually no only one of them was about Carnap and then the other one was just truth, truth by, by convention. convention so the paper okay the titles are two dogmas the other one is truth by convention and the third one is Carnap, Carnap and logical truth yeah and then mm -hmm. the book word and object but specifically chapter two <laughs> chapter two on the indeterminacy of meaning or well what Bogosian is calling the indeterminacy of meaning the indeterminacy uh, of translation right? oh yeah right, right technically but yeah well actually you know that's that turns out to be an important point, right? Yeah. Because um, there's no difference between the indeterminacy of meaning and indeterminacy of translation if you're a verificationist about meaning. Right. Um, yeah. Or just about mind in general. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're a behaviorist. Uh, but if you give up on that, then you separate. Anyway, the, the concern here is whether meaning is determinate. And it's thought that that argument uh, insists on it. Yeah, because uh, one of the things that Bogosian, you know, wants to, to bring to light is that for the past 
like 40 some years at the time he's writing, uh, people tended to agree with Quine that we had to get rid of analyticity, but they wanted to reject his indeterminacy thesis. They wanted to maintain some sort of meeting realism. Um, and one of the main theses that Bogosian argues for is that you just can't do that. You can't both reject indeterminacy and buy Quine's argument against epistemic analyticity. Yeah, this is where it starts to get really tricky for me. Because yeah. I, I always accepted both. I always accepted the rejection of analyticity and the rejection of, well, determinacy of meaning. Um, but, but I think you convinced me one day to mm. accept the determinacy of meaning. I'm not really sure what it is that you said. I think we, I, we were just in the car and... Yeah, it had to do with reference and externalism. I mean, we were just having some random argument. And then at some point I said... Well, no, that's clearly wrong because indeterminacy of translation. And you said, <laughs> and you said, but it has to be determinate. And obviously, it's not an argument. No, yeah. But somehow, I said, yeah. It was enough of an incredulous stare <laughs> <laughs> that you that you paused for a second. And, I mean, I think you know. I think I had been yeah. I had been, I had been navigating toward uh, a genuine naturalization, which would require a determinacy for meaning. Mm. For some time, yeah, but was still kind of in the grip of uh, I don't want to say the behaviorism, but I don't know. I, just, I guess I just assumed coin therefore true, something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet, but it is. I had already given up on Quine's rejection of intentions, or at least the utility of that kind of logic of modality. Sure. And so I figured, well, if I was going to give up on those scruples. What ground did I have to accept the indeterminacy? And then I discovered, right. and that, you're certainly not a verificationist, right? Well, I mean, nobody is, right? I mean, anymore? Yeah. I think, right? I don't know. I'm sure, I'm not sure. There might. Yeah. I'm sure there's somebody in some far off corner. Yeah. Well, I've never been to Poland, but <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's where they are. I have no idea. Anyway, um, I... somebody verify it for us. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. They hang out with the uh, the scientific anti-realists, maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm sure there's some scientismist. Yeah, that's the term. anyway, I don't, I, I, I don't, I didn't have that problem anymore. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe, and then I discovered William Lycan. Uh, oh, he's mentioned in the, in the paper, right? But I had previously read his paper in the Fetzer anthology, and he says that he accepts the Quinean rejection of conceptual analysis and of analyticity, but rejects indeterminacy, just because it's obvious that it's wrong. And I thought, well, okay. Maybe he doesn't say that, but but that's how I came across. That's how I remember it. Yeah. So anyway, I, I started to explore that maybe there needs to be a middle ground here. And this is exactly the tack that Bogosian is taking. He's wanting to defend the, um, the, the widely held conviction that epistemic analyticity, or rather any kind of a priori reasoning, is not somehow completely delegitimized, de- 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 uh, and also is observing that... Uh, Meaning realism is a thing, you know. Right. Determinacy is not widely accepted. Yeah. Um, even by those who. In fact, are we most... now have multiple candidates for theories of meaning. Right. I mean, we have, we have what is it? Conceptual, Conceptual world, world semantics, yeah. causal, causal world world semantics, semantics, and who knows what else? Various externalist semantics. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's the context. Um, I want to. I, I want to read the the three example. Um, truths that Bogosian gives us of sentences that are a priori 
but not obviously Frege analytic. Oh yeah, because of course, if if epistemic analyticity is supposed to serve as a as a uh, grounding or rehabilitation of the a priori, uh, it it's you know presumably got to cover all of the cases of the a priori, and there are certain cases that Bogosian presents as um, not being obviously Frege analytic, so it's not clear how it's going to how Frege analyticity or epistemic analyticity is going to actually work for those. Right. So the, those sentences. So we we could start with the classic ones, right? So yeah. A equals A, analytic, logical truth. Uh, the bachelors are unmarried males. Sure, you just do a conceptual analysis. Right. You recognize all bachelors are male and that they're all unmarried. Therefore, therefore, though of course there are exceptions like the Pope and uh, the not yet quite divorcee who's already dating. Uh, but sure. we don't we don't worry about that. Um, but here are some examples that are even more worrisome. Whatever is red all over is not blue. Whatever is colored is extended. And third, if X is warmer than Y, then Y is not warmer than X. Okay. So, um, yeah. I personally don't find any of these to be analytically true. At least not, um, not with the force of the examples I just gave before. Um, but I think it's because... I take terms like red and blue and colored and extended and warmer to be fully within the domain of physics or at the very least folk physics. I don't, I don't come at these with, uh, you know, 17th century style or 18th century style, uh, empiricist meaning postulates. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not obvious that there's something you can substitute for, blue or for not blue and somehow get red <laughs> get red or not red something that you would be able to make a logical truth with <laughs> actually can i say something really cheesy okay so i once had a, a computer and it had blinking lights mm-hmm. uh, this all time uh, and, and one of them okay they, they weren't always blinking they were at, right next to each other one of them was okay. green and the other one was red and i noticed that if i looked at it and crossed my eyes I could have the field of vision overlap so that there was a point in my unified field of vision where the green light overlapped with the red light. Okay. And they did not blend. I didn't see, as with paint, like the middle hue or anything like that. Yeah. I literally saw green and red in the same space, the same point. Hmm. Now, of course, not in the same physical point because I was looking cross-eyed. Right. But uh, in the same point of my field of vision. Yeah. Whatever that might mean. It seems to me that it uh, argues against these kinds of analytic truths, um, because I could, I could, you know, I I had the experience as of something that is both red and green all over. Though of course there is no such object um, that could cause me to see that as I did when I was cross-eyed. Do right. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I follow what you're saying, and um, I think it's an interesting case because if what you experience is just uh, if, if what you had was just an experience that was as of those lights crossing um, that doesn't mean that they then actually crossed but if how should I put it how can 
determining that be a matter of meaning <laughs> exactly right right that's Isn't exactly that a question point. to ask the you know neurophysiologist right to, uh, I'd rather in combination not ask with the physicist or whatever yeah, exactly. well yeah <laughs> i'd rather not involve them but but the the, the point is exactly that and, and that um i was here doing an experiment i was I, it, it's only in virtue of my knowing something about the physiology of looking at something cross-eyed yeah uh, that i'm mm. able to rule out the the physical possibility of something being red and green all over mm-hmm. but it wasn't a matter of semantics it wasn't a matter of my knowing the meanings of the words yeah as for being something being colored and extended i mean that's another example like don't we know of point sources of light yeah i mean there's something tricky here that i think will come up later um which is that it may be that it requires the development of a theory in order to, to fully or at least more completely uh, understand the meaning of the terms red and blue and whatnot. Um, but that once that such a theory has been developed and is right or accurate um, and is you know, dispersed into the uh, community of ordinary language speakers, it may be that after some time, such statements do become plain um, and do become known in virtue of their meaning or something like that. Hmm. So if there's by, a trick. If, if by meaning you mean some kind of externalist meaning. Yes, it would be a, it would be a kind of externalist meaning, but but it would be <laughs> it would be posterior to science <laughs> um, for sure. But it's still um, potentially a priori in the sense that. Um, once the meaning is established, I mean, you don't have to refer to scientists. Huh. This is this is kind of like the point made by Jackson, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is similar to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's something to that. Actually, this is a good moment to segue then into. Um, so, so Carnap's answer to this is the meaning postulates. Right, 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 right. right. And so then, the, the the idea of the meaning postulate is that you would. Um, effectively and implicitly define um, the terms red, blue, extended, etc. by way of sentences that are introduced into the language as you introduce the terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then you run experiments, that, which is to say, uh, collect observation sentences. And these would not be true by definition, but rather true empirically on the basis of the meaning postulates, which are true by definition, by postulation, if you will. Yeah. Um, and then this is the target of Quine's two dogmas, where he says, you may think that that's what you're doing, but actually there's no principal distinction between sentences of the one kind and sentences of the other kind. Yeah. Now, we're not going to review uh, the details. The arguments. Of, yeah, yeah, the whole argument of two dogmas. To say that, nothing of the other two or three papers that are cited. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but we can refer to it. So, um, yeah. you know, check out the uh, the links in the uh, show notes. Do we have show notes? Is that, uh, like, officially a thing? We're doing show notes? It is a thing. We're definitely doing show notes. Okay. I know we only just wrote them down for the previous episode, but um, <laughs> we'll get better at this as we go. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, um, let's see. What's next? Right, so the, the two different readings of two dogmas, um, right, are worth covering. Um, what two dogmas says, what Quine says in two dogmas of empiricism is, 
that there's no principal distinction between uh, analytic and synthetic truths. The synthetic truths are the truths that aren't analytic. Um, and, um, and so for that reason, nothing can be said to be analytic because there's always an element of synthesis. No, syntheticity. Syntheticity, yeah. Yeah, analyticity is a very common word, but you don't see a syntheticity too I think much. I, did, I think I just discovered why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. It's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, synth, synth, syntheticity. Yeah. Okay. That's the, yeah. Um, so, uh, but there's two different ways of understanding the argument. Yeah, what, yeah, what does it mean to say that there's no analyticity? Right. So one is that um, there is no fact of the matter, um, right. or I sometimes said non-factual called non-factualism about analyticity. That's just the view that there are there are no meanings um, to be right about. Yeah, there are no meaning. There are no meanings to be right about. There are no uh, facts about synonymy. <laughs> right. So, um, right. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, there are no facts about synonymy. Which, right. In, in other words, for any two words such as um, bachelor and unmarried male as a phrase there is nothing that they may or may not uh, co-refer to or, or rather mean That's yeah right. yeah there's nothing that they might both mean um, exactly but for that to be the case there would have to be some there would have to be nothing that either of them individually mean yeah and the trouble is uh, for Boghossian not that this is invalid as an argument but that it requires indeterminacy of meaning. It requires a meaning anti-realism. It requires that there be no meanings. Right. Yeah. So this uh, is his his point that he recurs throughout the paper. Right. That you can't both buy Quine's uh, uh, issues with analyticity and and uh, keep meanings. <laughs> right. So if you have if you have any kind of meaning realism, if you think there's any such thing as an answer to the question, what does this mean? Uh, then you have to allow that sometimes two phrases will mean the same thing. Right. Simple as that. Okay, so the second way of reading two dogmas is that, uh, sure, there are meanings, but uh, they never coincide. Just as a matter of... uh, As a matter of fact. (laughs) Dare I say, right? Whereas the other view has no facts. This view has facts, but but they never coincide. I mean, there's... It's as if... uh, I mean, there are there are facts about what individual words and phrases mean, but they never happen to mean the same thing, right? So it's called the error theory. Um, yeah, the trouble with that is that, uh, as Bogosian points actually, I think, out, I think what? people, I think some people did actually hold this. I think Nelson Goodman had this view that what that that there were just no synonyms, <laughs> that every word just has a different meaning from every other word in one really radical paper of his. I, I don't know. I kind of like the idea. Yeah. Uh, well, it's just. I mean, it's an obnoxious idea, right? Sure. Because, <laughs> sure. because it's like saying, um, you know, color with a U and color without a U uh, <laughs> can't mean the same thing because, you know, the U just has that slight little connotation of Britishness. Yeah, absolutely. And some colors are just more... It has an air about it. <laughs> some colors are just more British, you know, yeah. like, like Earl Grey. Is that a color? <laughs> I'm sure it is. If you go to the paint store, I'm sure there's an Earl Grey. Okay, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, but yeah, there's something ridiculous about in- insisting on. Yeah, it it definitely is in keeping though with a with a holism. With right, the spirit well, that's the of whole. Holism. That's the whole point. It's like so. The point of okay, so holism 
Um, where does holism come from? Does it come from indeterminacy of translation? I guess it does, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. So. so, so meaning holism. It's what's left. I mean, you either. Oh, that's right. You're either a meaning realist or it includes everything. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, re- I actually had the idea of meaning holism when I was in high school. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't reading any of this stuff, but, but sure. I remember talking to. I, re- I was thinking about AI. In uh, high school? Okay. Well, I mean, sure. Whatever, As one does. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I read a book. It's not like I did anything. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but I was thinking about AI, and uh, I remember telling uh, my English teacher, um, I said that I, I was despairing for the possibility of AI because it occurred to me that how are you supposed to program a computer to you know, read and write mm-hmm. when the meaning of every sentence or of every word depends on everything you've ever said? <laughs> oh my gosh wow no i just had That's this amazing I, I just had this idea that it okay well it's not true i wasn't exposed to anything i had just read blue and brown books oh really <laughs> the blue and brown. okay all right now the truth comes out yeah no i'm not i'm not some kind of unsung genius i had just read Wittgenstein, so it, it, it probably uh yeah, it probably stuck in there somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. But yeah, so so I I just it just occurred to me that um, there was a sense in which the the dictionary definitions in their brevity mm-hmm. were at best well abbreviatory, uh, mm. and and that there was always more nuance. There's always more that can be said about any given concept and by extension any given word. Yeah, but of course this can't really be true. Um, you know, as we were saying, uh, if if you know the the meanings of the pieces in chess, well, how how is checkers going to have an influence on that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the relevance of checkers to chess? <laughs> so, Except for philosophical examples. <laughs> right. Okay. So going back to the holism. So if you have, um, if every if the meaning of every ever every word and by extension every sentence depends on the meaning of every other word and the truth value of any other sen- of every other sentence, then yeah, the chances of getting synonymy are pretty much zero. Yeah, I mean, the chances that any two speakers or believers will coincide in their uh, speech practices and belief systems in total <laughs> is, I mean, pretty much nil. But I was thinking about this. I was thinking about uh, examples of coincident meaning. So this is, this is not this is not Bogosian. This is just okay. my own reflection. Um, I thought... I thought of a few words. I'll, I'll just list them first. iPad. Um, the. Like the, the word the. Um, extension. Um, in, the, in the philosophical sense. And introduction. Which is not a philosophical word. Yeah. Um, Except in the case of like negation introduction. <laughs> that's logic. Strictly speaking. Sure. <laughs> uh, and... And then the chess bishop. Right. Right. Um, so I, I was just curious, like, what are the chances that we coincide? Uh, that is that when you use the word iPad, it's synonymous to my, to what I mean. Right. Okay. I shouldn't have said when you use, because I'm not trying to suggest the meaning is used doctrine or anything. But what you mean by iPad, right? Sure. What are the chances that it means what I mean by iPad? Yeah. And I estimated this at uh, the the chance that we don't mean the same thing at 0.1%. Because it seems like a one in a thousand chance that either of us don't fully understand the history of Apple Computer 
and reliably spell the word iPad identically. Yeah. Because that's really all it takes right. to identify the devices that are iPads. Yeah. And for us to coincide. Notice I didn't say tablet because it gets complicated with phablets and uh, Androids and all those things. I, I don't do the... I only do the Apple. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's... Uh definitely described as designed by apple in california <laughs> I, I i do what steve tells me to do right uh, yeah or or would if he were around oh, i'm sure yeah. he left instructions um I'm sure okay and then the word the okay uh well the is um you know, we have our biases you know given uh, russell <laughs> russell and sentence diagramming and yeah, I mean, I understand, you know, and determiner phrases and right. Such. So, and and we both have that that education, and so the chances that we would disagree on the very specific meaning of the is small, but it's not as small as iPad. So I estimated it at around two three percent. Okay, um, I think that if we were to dive deep into this area of syntax, we'd probably just agree, uh, except unless it's the two percent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, Okay, and then going further. Well, it, it just it's interesting because the um, is very it's very different from iPad, both in the way that you said, and that it um, there's a it has a a technical air to it, um, or at least for us it does. Um, but uh, but also because it's more I don't know ethereal. I don't know what the what the word would be to describe it. But an iPad is like a thing I can point to. But the it's it's different. But it, it has a much right. more strictly grammatical function yeah that's actually um, a problem right because with with ipad you can point to the company you can point to the devices right um there's a very specific point in history uh that grounds the meaning um we can, you can apply the reference borrowing theory etc right whereas with the um yeah i mean you can easily imagine a diversity of logics and theories of language and syntax about which we might fight or something. <laughs> sure. But, but no. I, I, but I think it's unlikely. Uh, at least for the word the. Maybe for the word but. I always wondered about but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, how different is it from and? I know. Okay. Never mind that. So uh, extension. Extension. By extension, I mean uh, the word given its philosophical technical usage. Uh, sure. Which is used by Descartes. Uh, but it's also used later by logicians. Yeah. Right. Um, In a different sense in a different sense but we know both right yeah and so the point is that because i'm using a word within a certain tradition in a tradition where people talk about the meanings of words all the time and then make a big fuss of getting clear about it then you know the, the chances that we coincide in our meaning and by that i don't mean the chances that we will agree when we spell things out because spelling it out would itself be subject to misunderstanding and equivocation etc right I mean, I mean that literally there is this thing in the world that is the meaning and we both mean that yeah okay it would have to be something like that i would estimate the chances that we agree on extension to be 90 percent, so 10 percent chance of getting it differently sure so it's higher than with the right? yeah and then with introduction i think the chances that we disagree are like 60 percent, 70 percent um Obviously, we'll agree with most usages, or what I mean by that is, when you say introduction, I'll take it my way. It may or may not be what you had in mind, but it'll work. That is, for the present purposes. Yeah. If, for instance, I say, can you read from the introduction in the book? I mean, okay, it's a little easy if it says introduction, but what if it doesn't say introduction? <laughs> sure. Again, what if it says forward or preface, or it's just front matter without a header? You would still pick the text that comes before the one, 
for chapter one. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and and we'd figure it out. Or yeah. or if uh, I say. I'm introducing my friend. Yeah, know? actually, that's what I was thinking of. Well, no, there you see, thinking, we already disagree. I wasn't thinking about <laughs> books. I was thinking about people. <laughs> Introductions. <laughs> well, I was thinking about conjunction introductions. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, the point is, um, there's like degrees. Okay. But here's the thing that really gets to me. So if, if meaning holism is right, then there's always a non-zero possibility of getting it wrong. And the divergence sure. would be the consequence of that extraneous belief whether it's about meaning or about the world or about both, which I guess Quine would insist is always about both. Yeah. Um, that stray belief that we happen to disagree about would account for our um, disconnect, our semantic disconnect. Mm-hmm. But what about something like the chess bishop? It occurs to me that, and by here, what I mean is uh, uh, how it moves and its role in the rules of the game. Right? Okay. Um, it occurs to me that uh, there is no way we could have a different meaning for chess bishop. Or rather, there is, but it would involve skeptical scenarios. You know, something like, we've been playing for years, but somehow you always thought you could only move five spaces, and I thought you could move all the way to the end, which definitely explains why you would never move all the way to capture that piece. And <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> or maybe you thought that on Tuesdays, you know, you could go horizontally and vertically. Yeah. But we never played on Tuesday because I'm too busy, so it never came up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and these kind of brain and event scenarios, I mean, they're fun to talk about, but I, I, I'm not really considering them uh, insofar as I take it as an assumption that we have meanings for our words at all, and under skeptical scenarios, maybe even that wouldn't be a given. So... I think there's something here. I think holism requires taking seriously these skeptical scenarios. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. It, but at any rate... Um, yeah, at any rate, it, it would seem as though um, coincidence of meaning is highly variable. But, yeah. But holism doesn't seem to allow for such variance, except insofar as one is measuring... Uh, the pragmatic effect of people getting along, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> like it's it's one thing to uh, it's like idiolectically everyone always has their own unique meanings. Yeah, everyone is always talking past each other. They just happen to get along. <laughs> oh my god, that's so disturbing. Right? I mean, y- y- you see why Rorty goes on and on about solidarity and champions quine when you see these, you know these. I know uh, he was going on about something. But <laughs> in my idiolect, I understood none of it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it wasn't consensual, <laughs> as he would say. <laughs> no. It's, uh, yeah, it's... For the record, I love Rorty. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, he's a really powerful philosopher. I think he's great. All right, that's we'll have to read him at some point. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So then, where does this leave us? It leaves us with um, the... If you reject meaning anti-realism, if you reject indeterminacy of meaning then you must accept that there are at least occasions of, uh, of meaning synonymy. Oh, and by the way, I mean, Quine himself admitted of uh, meaning synonymy in the cases of two tokens of the same type. The same orthographic type. As opposed to? Well, as opposed to... Well, as opposed to... Hmm. As opposed to logical type or something like, more like... Uh... Just having a semantic type that, like the, oh, the, yeah, the yeah. linguistic that sure, a linguist sure. might want yeah, yeah, to okay. sort of accord. Uh, yeah, I know. I meant the word. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, so like if you say uh, birds are birds, okay, right? Um, he he would say that the word the word bird in the first occurrence in the sentence has the same meaning as in the second occurrence in the sentence. Yeah. Uh, so even as he rejected synonymy and wanted to say that that was unintelligible, he certainly found that intelligible. Yeah. But it's because it's because he wanted to deal with logical truth elsewhere. But he does right deal with it elsewhere. He deals with it in. Uh, the other two essays uh his very first essay or at least the one that made him famous philosophically truth by convention right and then the other one carnap and logical truth um so then uh if and he, and he does accept um something like analyticity for the logical truths right what he what he rejects is that there are no that there are any non-obvious or non-trivial um, instances of things that are true that aren't well it's it's not really analyticity so much as it's just implicit definition i guess right that well he, we'll get to that later that he's, um, um, okay yeah no he, do, he does preserve uh something for the obvious truths yeah but but he's very clear in that he wants to make no distinction between the obvious truths that are uh true um well, okay, this is really subtle. Um, yeah. There are some truths that are obvious because they're just so familiar. They're just so deep. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't follow from logical form. Right. And he wants to say that there's no principal distinction even there between the very, very obvious truths that you're familiar with and those due to logical form mm-hmm. because the logical form is itself derivative of the very, very obvious truths due to their familiarity. I see. Remember, in Truth by Convention, what he does is he defines logical form as just what's lever- whatever's left over when you remove all the words that aren't the logical constants. Yeah. Which ones are the logical constants? Well, the ones that figure in the really, really, really obvious truths. Right. Or something like that. Something like that. Um, okay, so... so um, Boghossian then moves on to okay. accept that we can get synonymy... Um, by some kind of theory of meaning, leaving open what that theory of meaning might be, and then proceeds to uh, logical truth, uh, because Frege analyticity depends on both premises or not premises, but um, yeah, premises. I don't know. Planks, it, you know. Yeah, planks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it requires, in order to serve as a basis for epistemic analyticity, it requires knowledge of logical truths to be a priori. So how can our knowledge of logical truths be a priori? Um, right. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, he's going to bring up implicit definition. No, but... first first it's... Uh, um, well, Frege's answer to logical truth is... Oh, yeah, right. So there's this kind of dilemma, right? This, like, uh, meta-linguistic dilemma almost. It's how can you justify your knowledge of logical truths but by employing logic right <laughs> right i mean is there is there any non-question begging way or any non-circular way non non-viciously circular way of justifying right your knowledge of logic right so for example suppose i ask you to justify how you uh infer that it is raining from it is raining or it is not raining yeah. No, 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 that's not it. No. From it is raining and it is dark. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. That's Oops. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if it's raining and it's dark, 
or let's put it this way if it's a dark and stormy night um how do you infer from that that it is a stormy night yeah okay and you would say oh well easy just use conjunction elimination you get rid of the end and you end up with it's a stormy night yeah gerhard genson taught me that (laughs) (laughs) and then and, and then you would say and then i would say but but explain to me exactly how this conjunction elimination rule works and you would say oh it's easy if you have a sentence that looks like p and q and you have a sent no no that's not that's not how it goes yeah now i think this works better with the if and then the if and then yeah oh with modus ponens yeah 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 okay let's do that one instead so if i say um oh yeah it's pretty yeah it's pretty clear that way yeah so if i say if i say if you won the lottery mm-hmm. then you bought a ticket okay okay now um i won the lottery and i infer i bought a ticket right but you would say okay well I, i've got that if you won the lottery you bought a ticket and i've got that you won the lottery but how exactly do you get from those two to the third yeah i would say oh well you know if if you have a sentence that of form p and you have another one of form p and plus q uh then you can apply the rule to the of modus ponens and yeah. get q but you just said if you have these <laughs> rules or if you have these premises <laughs> Then you can apply. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is actually an ancient bit of logic wisdom. Uh, uh, comes all the way from Lewis Carroll. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the tortoise met Achilles, or no? What is that? What yeah, what the tortoise said to Achilles. What the tortoise said to Achilles. Yeah. Yes, which is um, isn't it like a story in a story? Is it not in one of his like? I have Alice? no idea. Where, no, no, he published no, it in Mind. Oh my gosh! Really? Yeah. Oh wow! That's incredible. Yeah, he published oh, it wow. in Mind. It must have been. Not very long wow. after the founding of the magazine, because gosh, yeah, it's so old. I didn't realize it's, like, it's that old. Yeah, it's yeah, very, it's very old. Yeah, I don't know if it makes it to the twentieth century, or I don't even know when he died. Do you have any idea when Lewis Carroll died? No idea. Anyway, I, if I had to guess, I'd say nineteen oh four. Okay, the paper, because it's just what's in my head. Um, uh, okay, but it could be eighteen nineties. I have no idea. Sure. At any rate, um, with with the way the story goes, is Achilles is trying to persuade uh, the tortoise to apl- to accept modus ponens right. and the tortoise you know just just as in Zeno's paradox he can't get anywhere he can't get anywhere logically uh, because no matter how no matter what argument Achilles provides the tortoise says but I need modus ponens in order to apply modus ponens yeah somehow. effectively right except yeah. it's all done in somehow English the, the tortoise is always ahead of him <laughs> <laughs> And, in, the, in the logical argumentation and it ends in a kind of deadlock uh because um the tortoise cannot be persuaded logically to think logically yeah um but but there's sort of a question that's left over even if you know even if you uh, accept that perhaps somebody could be massively confused or just extremely peculiar <laughs> in their rejection of uh such an obvious logical truth could you at least justify it to yourself right in some way right um, could achilles convince himself that he's got it right yeah so dummit according again this is from bogosian uh, right uh he cites dummit's answer to this question which is to propose um a circularity just not a vicious circularity right it would be uh i guess virtuous does he call it a virtuous circularity? he doesn't although i have heard that term term before i have too but i don't know if it was in the context of philosophy 
It was. Yeah. Uh, it was for me. Yeah. It was um, in the context of Dewey, actually. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, another pra- pragmatist uh, yeah. sorts. Um, well, actually, yeah. that's to the point, right? Because Dummett calls it a pragmatic circularity. Right. And the yeah. idea is that it's is that the justification for the use of modus ponens lies in the in the practice of how you think, and not in any particular proposition that you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose this is uh, this is powerful insofar as it makes reference to inference rules as well as to axioms sure um but but it's unclear exactly how it's all supposed to work bogosian nods in this direction and says yes this is a good idea but but the the main point of this paper is just going to be to defeat the objections that quine has to um well not to frege's refusal to answer but rather to a wittgenstein and carnap's recommended alternative to Frege, which yeah. is the now central point of the paper, the recommendation to conceive of logical truth as uh, a product of implicit definition. Um, I don't know if that uh, quote here, this last one, comes before or after the implicit definition. Mm. I'm not sure either. Well, why, why don't you figure that out while I read the definition of implicit definition? Okay. All right, so... Implicit definition. It is by arbitrarily stipulating that certain sentences of logic are to be true, or that certain inferences are to be valid, that we attach a meaning to the logical constants. More specifically, a particular constant means that logical object, if any which makes valid a specified set of sentences and or inferences involving it. There's a lot there. Um, yeah. But there I think is a lot there. But it's, uh, it's pretty brilliant, I think. Uh, the basic idea is that for the logical constants, that is words like and, if, then, and maybe also all and every, for quantification theory sure um for these words definitions are not given as with a dictionary definition it's not merely a substitution of terms we don't define words in such a way that we can eliminate those words and paraphrase <laughs> yeah the word not is uh not abbreviatory <laughs> <laughs> it's small enough already yeah uh, exactly i suppose you could translate into it is not especially the case that... especially in formal logic it's as short as can be <laughs> Exactly. The only uh, the only uh, unary operator worth mention. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And and so to define the word not or the word no for that matter, but let's not go there. Let's just say not. Yeah. Not. Um, you just use it. You use it uh, in a number of different ways, a short number of ways, um, and then. Uh, yeah, it is important, but it's how should I put it a somewhat compact number yeah. of ways. It's not it's not all the ways. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not like all the ways. So not occurs. You know, you, you probably use the word not all day, every day, but you don't have to recount all the different usages. Right. The example given in Bogosian is for is for conjunction, and he has three patterns. Mm-hmm. Right. A and B. Um, premise A and B conclusion A. Premise A and B conclusion B. Yeah. And premise A, premise, premise B, B, 
conclusion A and B. Right. And that's it. So the idea is you just lay these out and you say, this is what I mean by and. Yeah. No definition. Or rather, no substitution definition. Right. Okay. It's just these validities. It's these. These are the valid inferences. These are forms, by the way, right? Because A and B can stand for anything. Exactly. And, and they are implicit. Implicit here just as a technical term. Obviously, you're being very explicit if you specify what the stipulations are. Yeah. It's implicit in the sense that you're not giving substitution. Right. Yeah, that, exactly. That's right. Um, so, but then how is it that you're making it true by stipulation? Or are you? Well, that's I, just it, right? Yeah. Uh, you're yeah. not making it true. What you're because, doing is... Because remember, Carnap also believed in implicit definition of sorts. They both did, Wittgenstein and Carnap. Yeah, Wittgenstein and Carnap. But the problem is that they had an anti-realistic bent to this understanding, right? Yeah. They thought that by making it true, or rather, by stipulating the meanings, they were making the sentences true. Yeah, um, exactly. But that's a problem, right? Because if it's a dark and stormy night, it's true. Mm-hmm. It's true because it is dark, and it is stormy, <laughs> and it is a night. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not because you decided to talk a certain way. Right. Yeah. You know, if you had decided to talk a different way, it would still have been a dark and stormy night. Yeah. Because your talking doesn't affect the weather. It's <laughs> <laughs> simple as that, right? Yeah. Um, so, and yet you are stipulating something. Well, at least with respect to logic, it's not obvious that you, they know stipulation is going to have play any role at all when it comes to uh, non-logical meanings yet or non-logical truths yeah i think this is so if if it were the case that the stipulation made the sentences true uh then we would have not only epistemic analyticity but metaphysical but metaphysical analyticity as yeah. well and, right. and that's called conventionalism right so this is this was this was the older view this is what quine was upset about well, among other things. Among other things, yeah. Yeah, he was upset about both analyticity as a separate category and conventionalism. Yeah. So you might say he w- he objected to both epistemic analyticity and metaphysical analyticity, but he didn't make the distinction um, explicit, if he even thought of it. He was just against analyticity. Right. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I'll just read here from uh, Boghossian's comment on this. The argument I give relies not so much on a distinction between a sentence... And a proposition, in the technical sense, disapproved of by Quine. Um, what's the technical sense? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, um, the technical sense disapproved of by Quine. Well, something intentional, right? Oh, something right, yes, right. Not, something, something non-extensional. Yeah. Right. Oh, I just found a book uh, a few months ago, Confessions of an Extensionalist. Uh, I was just looking at it before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a collection of his, of the es- uh, of the essays that went unpublished. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he says, I'm not an essentialist, and I also am not an existentialist, I'm an extensionalist. <laughs> you know, one of the problems with Quine is, even if it turns out he was wrong, his his phraseology, oh, okay, yeah, totally. his, his charm is so great. Right? <laughs> it could take you decades to get over it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's so great. His style is amazing. Yeah, actually, you know, Foto reminds me of that. Totally different sense of humor. Oh, yeah, completely different. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, he doesn't make you agree with him. 
No. He's happy he's to have you disagree. Totally, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. He's very um, explicitly pugilistic. Yeah, so he'll, he'll, he'll tell you you're wrong to your face yeah. uh, and enjoy it. And Quine will tell you, you've been with me all along. You just didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so the technical sense is just a non-extensionalist understanding of a proposition. Uh, in other words, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. So I'll just start it over. The, the argument I gave relies not so much on a distinction between a sentence and a proposition in the technical sense disapproved of by Quine, as on a distinction between a sentence and what it expresses. And it is hard to see how any adequate philosophy of language is to get by without some such distinction. Even on a deflationary view of truth, there is presumably a distinction between the sentence, snow is white, and that which makes the sentence true, namely, snow's being white. And the essential point for my purpose is, is that it is one thing to say that snow is white comes to express the claim that snow is white as a result of being conventionally assigned to the truth value true, and quite another to say that snow comes to be white as a result of our conventions. The first claim is implicit definition, however implausibly applied in this case, and the other is conventionalism, but neither one seems to me to entail the other. Yeah. You know, this raises another problem that I wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah? The overstipulation. Oh, right. You can't stipulate that snow is white any more than you can stipulate that snow is black. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless you're in New Jersey and, you know, you've been driving on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, you can't stipulate the sun is cold. Sure. Right? But, but that's not even the point of this paragraph, right? Because he's first wanting to say that um, that whatever the stipulations, it isn't the case that snow comes to be white as a consequence of the stipulations. Well, it's yeah, exactly. It isn't yeah, exactly. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to um, cut off the uh, supposed entailment relation between stipulation and, and truth. Right? We stipulate that it's true, but we don't uh, by doing so thus make it so. <laughs> yeah but then uh so what is the business with these how can you why is it that you can't stipulate that snow is white and i think what it comes down to is that these are these aren't logical constants yeah well no the difference is okay so when we stipulate it um when we stipulate a sentence it's not yet obvious whether or not that will serve as an implicit definition right because I'm, I'm not oh yeah no I'm, i think you've got it yes so maybe it's like a like a tentative action yeah, that sounds right. right it may not survive because it may conflict with other stipula prior stipulations right or or simply other the results of other investigations or yeah something. it's just it's it's participation in in the uh in the course of uh usage and and inquiry yeah. or whatever the case yeah yeah it's almost as if well Sorry, I, I was going to employ uh, a holistic, it, it, semantic metaphor. It, but Actually, I think what's important is here about uh, implicit definition is uh, you were contrasting it with explicit definition earlier, but now I'm really getting what the difference is, which is that explicit definition is like giving a recipe for abbreviation, right? But that is, uh, it's explicit because it is explicitly metalinguistic. But when you implicitly define something, when you stipulate that something is true, um, 
it's it's just a speech act. It's not it's not like you're ascending to the meta language and commenting. Except, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not. I know that that's entirely true. I think you can do it with assent. You just, um, yeah, I don't see why you couldn't. Uh, but I think there's something to what you're saying anyway. I'm, not, I'm just not really sure. Yeah, sure. Um, no, I, I think the main thing is just that you can't, you can't say, what is the meaning of foo? Right. Right. Because the meaning would be whatever you can replace it with. There isn't anything you can replace and with. Uh, given the implicit definition by way of three syllogisms in yeah. argument forms. Right. I don't know. It, it's not important. I, I, I think it's an awkward way of qualifying definitions because it's perfectly explicit to have specified those inferences. Uh huh. If anything. A more holistic approach. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing hidden. It's, exactly. But that's why I was trying to say that maybe what the issue is is metalinguistic versus the, the idea of stipulation being some sort of speech act, something yeah. you're doing. No, I, I hear you. I think there might be. He doesn't go into it, but no. it's just what I. It's coming to mind. Yeah, I think there might be something to that. I'm. I'm um, and sure. the reason why I say this is because why is it that. Uh, the act of stipulation is supposed to allow us to um, justify what we say in the first place. I think it must be because the conditions of satisfaction of a stipulation provide for our justification of what we later say. What, what do you mean? What uh, The conditions of satisfaction? I mean, so this is a term from Searle from something we read sure, yeah, back remember. in the day. Um, but, it, but the idea is that... Uh, uh, various, back in the day. Back in the day. You're not old enough to have a back in the day. <laughs> I guess not. I guess I'm not. It was. It seems like forever ago. Um, it's been. Oh my god! Last year. Yeah. Okay. I guess it was maybe only last year. But um, what was it in that we read by him? The phenomenological illusion. Really? Yeah. Huh. Actually, that may have been two years ago. Anyways. Yeah. Um, but yeah, where he talks about how attitudes and actions have. Uh, or speech acts have conditions of satisfaction, as he calls them, which are just something like the conditions that have to obtain in order for that um, that speech act or attitude to have the meaning that it does. Um, so, like whether it's a command or a question or whatnot. Oh yes, right, mm-hmm. right. There mm-hmm. are certain conditions that have to obtain in order for it to have. have okay, well then, what would be the conditions the of satisfaction for an implicit definition? For a stipulation. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, for a stipulation, I think it's something like that the the uh, following conversation, or maybe it self satisfies. That that the I think it's that the that the conversation that follows um, that is a continuation of that context um, oh. is one in which one can freely assert statements oh. that are in accordance with what one has stipulated. Right, right, right. So it's right, and the stipulation that, contributes. It contributes to it being justified. Right, right a priori. Right in this sense relative to context oh this is good maybe this is the very source of that sense that a priori truth comes for free yeah um it is because it's paid for by way of the speech act of the stipulation exactly i think this is what is meant by it being a pragmatic justification Mm, yeah yeah because it's in the act the the pragmatic aspect of the speech right and this also accounts for 
overstipulation being a failure uh-huh because acts can fail <laughs> yes right yeah 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 there was a, there's a point here about um fallibilism right 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 <laughs> so one of the big worries about a priori truth has always been that uh well historically you know we commit ourselves to all kinds of a priori truths that later turn out to be falsehoods yeah yeah uh, i mean <laughs> so uh, yeah so not only for a long time were the a priori identified with necessity and with uh, analyticity but yet another thing was often identified with this group which was certainty <laughs> yeah <laughs> infallibility right. incorrigibility etc right. indubitability that's right. my favorite one yeah exactly <laughs> indubitably <laughs> uh, but no but but also so it's not just that these subtle category these categories may afford subtle distinctions but that mm-hmm. they just the truths that we had selected were totally misplaced you know, we would pick something yeah. as an operator truth when not only was it not indubitable, <laughs> it was not only not only was it doubted, it was later false. You know, right? Like, uh, for example, uh, I don't know, like what? What's a famous one? A famous one. Um, what was indubitable? I mean, I think people had certain rationalists had thoughts about like geometry and space. I don't mean like mathematical geometry. I mean like. The geometry of the world <laughs> oh sure like euclidean geometry that's a famous one yeah so it was thought that space like physical space was i don't want to say euclidean but let's say it was consistent with euclid's geometry yeah uh, or rather that euclid's geometry was a true description of physical space um yeah in fact even even newton's uh, laws of motion were thought to be self-evidently true once you understood them right uh he was said to yeah so that was that's certainly true for both of those cases but uh yeah they turned out both to be false you know one gave way to einstein and the other one gave way to well einstein <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i guess yeah right <laughs> smart guy um yeah uh or maybe just a rebel i think he was just a rebel poncare was smart too sure but even things <laughs> but even things like uh something which might seem like totally must be true by definition or stipulation at the at the outset which is something like heat is caloric or as a substance you know phlogiston like substance you might have thought well that's just what we're defining i mean it must be this substance which accounts for whatever well it, it the operary uh, truth if it was even operary would be something like heat is a substance sure um yeah but yeah i might i guess my point is something like there was a stipulation <laughs> oh, I see. going yeah, on yeah. Yeah, I um, in these in the positing of these things. Atoms are indivisible. Yeah, exactly. That's a yeah, That's another good one. Yeah, atoms are indivisible, except you know they're not. <laughs> yeah, and yet we still refer to them as atoms. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because we don't know Greek. Um, yeah, right. But I, I think I think the lesson that's been internalized by anyone who lived through the 20th century, which is most of us. Um, Oh, did you get a chance? To... <laughs> uh, the the lesson has been that uh, uh, yeah. everything is doubtable. I, I was born before the wall fell, so I think that means I was born in the 20th century. Sure, that counts. Uh, the Mexican wall? We haven't built it yet. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we doubt everything. Yeah. Uh, nothing is taken as given. In fact, we've got the whole story of the myth of the given. Right. Uh, although it's not related, it's kind of in the same spirit um yeah so where was that going 
Um, where were we going? We were talking about fallibility and. Uh, oh right. So if we want to re- if we want to recover a notion of the a priori by way of a not metaphysical analyticity but mm-hmm. strictly epistemic analyticity by yeah. way of some kind of pragmatic stipulative um, stipulative definitions or just stipulations stipulated yeah, truths stipulated truths which implicitly define either uh, the logical constants and other and words. potentially other words as well yeah, yeah. yeah such as warmer right right yeah that would have given us the earlier analytic truths yeah that were not obviously frege analytic not frege analytic because we didn't have explicit or the potential for explicit substitutivity definitions right yes but if you had stipulated certain relations like Mm -hmm. such as that warm is or warmer than is anti-symmetric yeah exactly yeah right so okay what was i saying uh if you want to rehabilitate the a priori, oh, yeah. then then you then we don't want to run afoul of the lesson of fallibilism. We want to say that we retain this notion that whatever developments come by in the philosophy of language mm-hmm. and epistemology, we still are committed, ironically, committed to <laughs> uh, the notion that every claim is fallible, every no all knowledge is defeasible. Yeah, all knowledge is divisible. All knowledge is, um, well, I should put it, not knowledge, but all claims are uh, potentially revisable. And it's not because we mean to say that they're all contingent or right. they're all um, synthetic. synthetic, yeah, or anything like that, but just because we might not have been right in the first place. <laughs> yeah, you know, this, this brings to mind the... When, the... When, when we stipulate a law of logic... Or any other term, uh, or the meaning of any other term, we might actually get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, or get it wrong, not in the sense that it doesn't match the facts, although that also would be the case. Yeah, but that the pragmatic action fails. Yeah, right. So there's some subtlety there, it's right? A yeah, deeper. yeah. And uh, this brings to mind. Uh, I like the way you put it, where you say um, it would succeed in being a priori if true right, right? exactly but, yes. but that that reminds me of uh the way kripke talks about um a posteriori necessities mm-hmm. you know um hesperus oh, is equal yeah. to phosphorus necessarily yeah if they're equal <laughs> right yeah exactly <laughs> right yeah so just because something is necessary doesn't mean you know it a priori yeah it just means that if you know it you know it yeah, he's also or yeah. rather what you know is necessary yeah he's also not saying that uh nobody has ever there's never been a case of mistaken identity right <laughs> like there are cases of mistaken identity <laughs> but uh, yeah isn't that weird yeah it is weird right <laughs> a, a case of mistaken of mistaken necess, necessary identity right exactly <laughs> yeah but this is this is the but not because identity is contingent right <laughs> right so so we still I mean, that's the thing, right? The linguistic theory of necessity, which I have very fond sympathies for, uh-huh. uh, unifies, or rather identifies, all of these things, right? It runs analyticity, a priority, and necessity all together. Sure. And we did well by breaking them apart. But not if the consequence is that everything is contingent, everything is synthetic, and everything is a posteriori. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, perhaps we could all just be scientists, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, it just runs in the face of what we kind of know. 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm always reminded of uh, Putnam's essays. You know, why reason can't be naturalized. Oh yeah. Um, or or his other one on mathematical truth, where he speaks of mathematical truth as being like a well. By the way, I think of the next episode we're going to do math. Um, oh yeah, to address this it's op- definitely this a, issue. Uh, an appropriate next subject. Because... Yeah, in fact, why don't we take that middle break? So, okay. Uh, so one of the conceits of this podcast is that we give our introductions in the middle because this is the middle of things. Introductions, you say? <laughs> well, you thought introduction meant at the beginning, but I'm revising that <laughs> right <laughs> by stipulation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I want to do it implicitly. I'll just keep going. Um, so. Yeah, we, we, we talk about the podcast in the middle to reinforce the notion that uh, in philosophy, traditionally, there's just been this notion that you must start at the beginning, you must get the premises right, you must be certain with every step, and the result is they never get past step one. Right, uh, and, and exactly. And we, we don't want to do that. We, we want to start, uh, we want to be where the action is and just burrow our way out of it from there. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of precedent for this, Quine being the obvious example, but... Uh, we're going to get to that over the course of maybe every single episode because it's, it's such a central idea, at least for us. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of things we wanted to say about the podcast in the middle. I think the main thing is uh, what we hope to do it like. Uh, I think we want to we want to we want to do philosophy dialectically um, as opposed to uh, as exposition exposition. Or as opposed to yeah, right. um, as interviews, or <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. Um, although I, I wouldn't be above an interview. You can interview me. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but but really, I think we just want to do something like the um, like the various famous dialogues of philosophy. Yeah. The dialectical dialogues, not only the Socratic ones, but later ones like 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 Berkeley, which. We're gonna read soon, mm-hmm. um, or like the uh, the the Lakatosh Vieira band. Oh my god, that which was so never awesome. happened, but was so amazing. Yeah, that was so awesome. <laughs> so there's this guy, this Italian philosopher, who took the letters of Fireband and Lakatosh, uh, and well, they were actually working on a book that would be in dialogue form. It was supposed to be uh, their interactions, but right. Lakatosh died. Died, yeah. Uh, and so, but they did have outstanding correspondence, and this guy. Put together a good twenty pages um, of, of false some of dialogue. the greatest dialogue <laughs> ever. It's so awesome. <laughs> if, if they never talked this way, then I'll take the fiction. Um, oh, totally! It was so good. Yeah. And there, and also Timothy Williamson has this great tetralogue. Right, right. Um, I'm right. You're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> is the subtitle. I love it. Except, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so we find those dialogues very exciting. The truth is, everyone does. Uh, but we, we, we're after an understanding of of why they're exciting i i refuse to believe that it's for the theatrical value uh for one thing these they're usually very terribly written as theater it would not make good tv in fact <laughs> no I, I, I thought of doing youtubes of these dialogues and, oh yeah but it's ridiculous yeah curiously it just doesn't work i don't think there's ever been like an actual production of the socratic dialogues that i, I you, know of i i don't i bet like, you they just fall flat yeah <laughs> or maybe or maybe nobody would watch now who knows at any rate i don't think it's theatrical value I think the reason we like them is uh, it's actually kind of deep, um, and so I have a few ideas. One is that um, despite everyone seeming to disagree with everybody else, like I've never met anybody that I agreed with completely. Mm-hmm. Despite that, we maintain this pretext 
that we are all ideally rational. Um, that is to say that there isn't any great competence that any one of us has over anyone else. Of course, some of us are quicker to the punch or more sure. creative, but that's not really material in the evaluation of the validity of an argument. Um, reason proper seems to be a universal, or at least it seems to me. And, yeah. and dialectic seems to put into... Um, um, it manifests uh, how what appears to be universal, a universal faculty, yields uh, diverging results. And somehow that tension uh, um, proves to be uh, an indicator of truth. And certainly that's what Socrates was after. He was being provocative and confrontational uh, to a point, you know, because it's not because he thought his interlocutors were wiser than he was or that he was trying to teach them anything but rather that in the constant back and forth the ideas would spring from the middle yeah um and so that's part of what we want to do we want to see basically um the dialectic in action um the second uh is that um oh and it's important though to understand the, the point is not to persuade you know we're not trying to persuade each other um nor would we be happy if we came to agree. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because uh, Socrates was uh, often uh, confused for a sophist. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that happens to me all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, they don't call me that, but no. they would if they knew. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but it's so unfair, because the point is not to persuade. No. The, the point is to... Uh, how does Quine put it? He says the point is not to... The point is to be right, not to have been right. <laughs> yeah that's good yeah like uh, and and it doesn't help you if someone agrees with everything you say uh because you need that tension uh in order to spur you to be creative yeah i mean in some sense i mean if everybody if, or if somebody uh just agrees with everything you say it doesn't it doesn't move you anywhere it doesn't it doesn't uh, shed any light at yeah. all on whether or not you were right in the first place. Another reason another reason it's good to be uh, in dialectic... Well, this is a, a gimme, but it's worth pointing out. There's yeah, TMTR. Yeah, just, <laughs> too much to read. There's too much to read, <laughs> That's right? right. And I've read different things than you. Uh, and yeah, so, totally. It, so it, it's great to put something out there and be corrected on the basis of something that you've been meaning to read and is on your list, but you never got around to. Yeah. Um, and another is context. Uh, I don't want to overstate this because I, I don't mean to say that I'm a contextualist about truth, uh-huh. at least not in any um, postmodern sense. Sure. Um, oh yeah. But rather that not uh, historicist. Right. I'm not. I'm not being historicist about truth. But I do think that by and large, any time you exit the very narrow confines of math and logic. Uh, context is a very strong determinant of what it is that you mean and sure. what it is that is true and a way to address the, the best way to address context the easiest way to address context is to be in the same context as your interlocutor sure uh, to literally be in the same room which means the same culture uh, the same time the same actual events occurring around you but also if you know each other personally you can draw on each other's histories and past conversations. Mm-hmm. And for the purposes of philosophy, really, it's the extended dialogue. It's being able to refer to the things you said last month, last week, last year. That context uh, settles a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of misfortune that I think 
occurs when you're just writing papers to each other. You just misunderstand each other for decades if you do it that yeah. way. Um, you see it. You see it in the literature. You see people misunderstand each other year after year, decade after decade. And I always wondered, why don't they just get on a damn phone? Um, but of course they do do that. <laughs> and, and, and somehow I'm sure that results in plenty of progress. But we don't see it. So I guess we want to... Yeah, it's all behind wanna, the scenes. Right? We want to show like, it. Yeah. Um, that's, that's another reason. Definitely. And the last... Uh, the last reason that occurs to me is that maybe maybe a good goal uh, that is tactically is not to to put out an idea and win everyone over uh, because that's so much work that's so much work and mm-hmm. it involves salesmanship and a career and sure maybe just persuading one person might be uh, a different tack I, I, I think that's what I'm attracted to I'm attracted to the idea of short um well more more narrow contexts of okay. dialectic i'm not sure why but i have a feeling that that might be better i hope this isn't repeating anything of what we said last week i mean not last week but in the previous episode uh, <laughs> whenever that was whenever that was <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i i mean if i uh if it happens that we repeat something it's it probably won't be exactly the same. I'm sure there will be some slight variation in what we said, as Chomsky would say. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I think that's enough for the middle. Uh, oh, and oh, but what about next time? Oh yeah, next time we're gonna do we're gonna go into the into math because why? Oh, because well, the, the logical object, right? So right, we in, should review the implicit definition, right? So the implicit definition makes reference to an, a logical object. That is, if you're if you're stipulating the truth involving the word and, then yeah. and uh, the meaning of and is some logical object. It's not its referent. It's more like its intention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in fact, he says it means that logical object, right? Right. But um, then, but then these aren't physical objects. Obviously, there's not. No, but I mean, it, it it makes sense that he would mean a meaning. Right. In the sense that uh, the meaning of the logical constants just are truth functions. They are those intentions. That, yeah, yeah. You know the <laughs> right. But then, but then you need a you need an ontology for uh, right. Yeah, these exactly. Logical objects, and that's that's a very natural segue into the philosophy of math, or at least the or area. maybe a non-natural segue. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> couldn't help it. Yeah, that's totally fair. <laughs> um, by the way, uh, I hate that. Um, that Rosen paper. Oh yeah, yeah. God, the uh, naturalizing nat- mathematics. Naturalism and mathematics. I forget the title, but it's, yeah. it's basically those two ideas. I think, although it was well written and you know certainly, uh, you know, smart, etc. <clears throat> it's what turned me away from naturalism finally. Huh. It's interesting. I mean, it's it's a deep thing, right? To give away. I, yeah. I I, I I always assumed naturalism was uh, kind of a way of saying. You're not an idiot, you know. Right, like, sure, yeah. I it almost became a platitude. Yeah, I believe yeah. in. I don't believe in ghosts. That's definitely. I believe in nature. Yeah. Um, and the reason it's a platitude is because whatever there is, well, if it's really there, it's it's in nature. Yeah. Uh, that that's how it sounded to me. I, I thought I was just contrasting myself to the supernaturalists. Sure. Uh, as in, you know, the uh, the Reiki masseuses and things like this. Yeah, it's tricky because the the term naturalism has undergone an evolution maybe even like multiple times oh i'm sure um because i think it definitely originally meant that 
or well, maybe know. not originally, but in a certain context. Um, Certainly, fifty years ago. Uh, well, I think even earlier than that. Well, sure, but I mean, certainly then. Yeah, what I, yeah, what I mean is, um, like, oh. at the end of the 19th century, it was definitely opposed to supernaturalism. Yes, but, but I don't but, think the, but the then, beginning but then of the, the 19th shift, century. Yeah, but then... Like, the, at the late 18th, when when natural philosophy began to separate itself from what was then alternatively yeah. called speculative philosophy. Right. I don't think the idea was that speculative philosophy was supernatural. Right, yeah. So, that was something else. Yeah. I was probably more in line with uh, the Aristotelian notion of nature. Yeah, uh, I'm not really sure. There's some deep, deep points there, but uh, yeah. So I, I certainly wasn't thinking of any of that. I was just thinking of uh, the opposition to supernaturalism. Right. Yeah. But I think then you know, well, with with Quine, um, right. it began to change its meaning. Right. Because we uh, wanted to take mathematical reality or truth. We wanted to naturalize mathematical truth. Yeah. Uh, to say nothing of analytic and logical truth. Right. Uh, but he wanted to naturalize the whole bit. He wanted to naturalize epistemology. He wanted to naturalize everything. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, uh, his successors have tried to uh, to um, deliver on that promise. Right. And it was mathematics' turn. And, you know, there have been different approaches. But it never really occurred to me that to naturalize math for reals okay requires <laughs> well, it's like a triple entendre uh, <laughs> yeah uh, right <laughs> required um giving up on the notion of abstraction uh as a, a realm of entities i guess i realized i was harboring hidden i was a closet platonist is i guess kind of what i was realizing yeah <laughs> yeah but it didn't you know come to a come to a head until that naturalizing mathematics article absolutely because yeah. i thought on some level quine himself was being a kind of closet platonist because once he gives well, yeah i mean he's, he, it wasn't closet at all but because yeah, when he gives up on nominalism that's right. effectively what he's saying yeah it's just that he wanted to limit it yeah he wanted to limit it because it was only set theory or Pretty whatever so, something like set theory yeah right i mean he, in other words he as long as to... it was extensional he was okay with it exactly yeah he got rid of propositions universals but sets were okay because they were by definition extensional and because and so, you need them right and, yeah, and indispensable right exactly and so i figured i figured okay well if I but their indispensability I... like played into the naturalism, uh, the naturalism right? right because it was really only in virtue of their imp- gainful employment in science okay but here's the thing and i right. didn't realize this until you've pointed it out just now yeah what he was what he was subscribing to was a methodological naturalism yeah that is the method would um would give legitimacy to a platonism about mathematical reality mm-hmm. but a more thoroughgoing naturalism to yeah. borrow his phrase from thoroughgoing pragmatism no right a, a more thoroughgoing naturalism <laughs> yeah. would be not merely methodological with respect to mathematical reality but ontological which is really the point right yeah uh, or well at least that is for me right now so yeah so once i gave up on the ontology or rather a naturalized on a naturalistic ontology for mathematical reality i thought well why why insist on a methodological naturalism yeah and it's like you've already you've already given it up uh there's no fear of going the way of ghosts we're only talking about numbers and sets right? <laughs> yeah so i thought a more modest not supernaturalism but let's say non-naturalism uh and it wasn't going to be about like 
ethics or aesthetics or something or reason or yeah right like in the Kantian sense or no it's just numbers or medieval sense it's just sets really damn it I mean it's just 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 that part right um, but this paper wanted to do away with even that uh, non-naturalistically anyway that's a huge digression but but it's not because actually it, it, it explains see there's a lot of philosophy of math but the philosophy of math that we're most interested in is just this question um, what is the ontological status of mathematical objects right. and what implications does this have for the question of reference yeah I think that's a crucial question which I think historically was somewhat neglected even. There was a lot of concern about the ontology of math and the epistemology of math, but this uh, linguistic question about how it makes, uh, how we refer to numbers, if there are such things, um, I don't think had as much focus. I guess it was, I mean, maybe it was there, but it, it was different because prior to the 70s, that is, to say prior to Kripke, everybody had a sort of inferentialist or descriptivist or take on reference um, and on, yeah, and, 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 that, and that played for math really well, right? I mean, like, if mathematical reference is just determined by a logical form or something like that. But, you know, after people started to go towards the causal theory of reference or things like it, which felt much more naturalistically acceptable, uh, it, it raises a huge issue for math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think the number two is going to cause anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> so that's a problem. So, yeah. yeah I, so, I, I. So I'll be curious to read about this. Uh, oh, I don't think we're going to get any answers on it. Um, well, not not well, not that. Uh, yeah, I, I have one paper in mind actually about this topic. Oh, good. But um, but there's also the other stuff by. Uh, well, the paper by Putnam on models and reality, and then right. by Benasserov. So that's the plan for next time. All right, let's go back to now that we've taken a break. There's, I think, there's a section that's worth uh, reviewing. Uh, the bit about Euclidean distance. Right. Yeah. So that's on three seventy six. Yeah. By the way, uh, we expect everyone to be reading these papers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, we're uh, we've we've implicitly stipulated that uh, everyone will have done the reading. <laughs> <laughs> and now we do it explicitly. Yeah. Uh, no, but seriously, obviously you're not. Well, I was only mentioning those words. I wasn't <laughs> using them. Uh, uh, there, there's, there's no, um, you know, there's no chance you can understand this uh, without reading along. Um, we did a lot of prep work. You know, we read this many times. Yeah. Um, so, um, and we're not really introducing it. I guess, I guess we are kind of introducing it, but are, are we really though? I don't know. It's kind of breezy the way we go about it. Yeah, in I mean, in parts, but uh, I think mostly it was just that we're sure we covered everything. Yeah, yeah, but 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 the idea is to engage each other in dialectic and also to engage you. Um, I would love to hear from people in comments. Yeah, definitely. Then, yeah, and then we would. That's going to make this much more exciting. And then we would follow up uh, in response to those comments. Um, after the example of the of the great philosopher Syracuse, <laughs> right? No, yeah, not, exactly. No, not 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 Archimedes at Syracuse. We mean Syracuse. That's right. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. that's his Twitter handle. Just yeah. look him up um, <laughs> with a with an I, not a Y. Right. Um, so um, yeah, let me read this out loud. 
Um, so this is in the context of flash grasping and intuitions, which is as explanations of uh, a priori knowledge, right? Yeah, this is the classical view of a priori knowledge, the so-called classical view, according to Bogosian. The idea is that, um, well, okay, in the same way that uh, Thomas Jefferson knew that uh, all men are created equal. By self-evidence yeah uh we know a priori truths and how is it that he knew that that was an a priori truth well because he just read it you know and and you read it and you immediately get the meaning right yeah uh, exactly and yeah. not only do you immediately get the meaning but it immediately makes sense it's just yeah. you just have an you intuition just and that it was grasp true the, yeah <laughs> you just, in a flash you just grasp the meaning yeah. and you immediately intuit that it's true exactly uh it's a little absurd but um but lacking another theory, uh, I guess it's pretty good. Um, so then we apply well, this it was to obvious, the right. But that's a good point. Actually, the very <laughs> theory of the very classical theory was a priori true. Yeah, and it was obvious. Um, so if you apply this to Euclidean geometry, um, what do we get? So reading out loud. Uh, There's a the picture. Yeah, the picture began to come under severe strain with the development of alternative geometries. This is on 375. Naturally enough, an analogous set of views had been used to explain the a priority of geometry. In particular, a flash grasp of the indefinables of geometry, along with intuitions concerning their necessary properties, was said to explain and justify belief in the axioms of Euclidean geometry. However, with the development of alternative geometries, such a view faced an unpleasant dilemma. Occupying one horn was the option of saying that Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometries are talking about the same geometrical properties, but disagreeing about what is true of them. But this option threatens the thesis of intuition. If, in fact, we learn geometrical truths by intuition, how could this faculty have misled us for so long? Occupying the other horn was the option of saying that Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometries are talking about different geometrical properties, attaching different meanings to, say, distance, and so not disagreeing after all. But this option threatens the doctrine of flesh grasping, Suppose we grant that a Euclidean and a non-Euclidean geometer attach different meanings to distance. And what does the difference in the respective psychological states consist? Officially, of course, the view is that one primitive state constitutes grasp of Euclidean distance, and another that of non-Euclidean distance. But absent some further detail about how to tell such states apart and and the criteria that govern their attribution, this would appear to be a hopelessly ad hoc and non-explanatory maneuver. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's seriously problematic, right? Like, how do we uh, distinguish between these two geometers? Uh, what they're doing? I mean, it's. So I think. It, it yeah it can't be I don't think it can be the case that. The difference lies simply. In, in virtue of something like flash grasping or intuition it's got to be something like I don't know this is, this is a real problem for me because I, I really want to adhere um, to the causal theory of reference but I don't know how to you're not going to be able to do to that to square that with yeah. you're not going to be able to do that <laughs> pardon and, the pun to make... square that with the <laughs> With uh, yeah, with the abstract nature of mathematical contents, you got to square right? the circle. Yeah, exactly. 
No, you're not, what I was going to say, rather, is that you're not going to be able to do that and and derive any value from the implicit definition proposal here. Yeah, right. I think that's a problem for me in general, right? And actually, he mentions that at the beginning, that, that he thinks that uh, this just might not work for externalism. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that, but, but on the face of it, um, this doesn't work just because this strategy of stipulation doesn't work just because you, it, it, it might float too free of context or something like that in order, you know, in order to, in order to, in order to have the semantic properties necessary to work. (laughs) Oh, this is good. Okay. No, this helps me. (laughs) I think I have a slightly better understanding of why this is a problem for you. Yeah. But let me just describe why it didn't seem like a problem for me at all. Okay. So it seems quite uh, feasible or unproblematic to say that the Euclidean geometer is happily uh, stipulating truths about distances and lines and spaces and postulates and proofs, etc. about space proper, right? Not about some abstract... Oh, sure. Geometrical okay. space, but about space. Yeah. The final frontier. Um, <laughs> right. <clears throat> well, they didn't know that, but um, yeah. Um, yeah. But that uh, is the appropriate definite description. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Reference borrowing, etc. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, but the non-Euclidean geometer, I would say, was doing exactly the same thing. I mean, he was happily... Uh, Stipulating certain truths. By the way, let me just revisit the implicit definition here. Uh, it is by arbitrarily stipulating that certain sentences of logic are to be true. Okay, there is an arbitrariness. Yeah. It is it is arbitrary whether you choose the path of Euclidean geometer or non-Euclidean geometer. Mm-hmm. And in either case, um, you are stipulating truths about said space, the same space. So it isn't merely that they're talking past each other. Uh, they're disagreeing. Right. But but they're both successfully generating internally consistent mathematics. Right. Uh, that additionally may or may not be consistent with uh, physical space. Sure. Uh, or rather, yeah, a, a theory, a physical theory of space. So... This goes back to the speech act idea, mm-hmm. right? Suppose you're a Euclidean geometer, and you stipulate that uh, that the parallel postulate is true. Okay. Um, that's going to be successful, uh, for the most part. You know, mostly, um, and that's why it sticks. And oh, for- it's, not, it's not why it sticks. It's the other way around. It's it's in some sense successful in virtue of its sticking. Yeah. Wait. Um, what did I say? You said... It uh, sticks. I said it sticks because it's successful. Yeah. And you're saying it's successful because it sticks? Right. Yeah. Oh, no. See, I think... No, I think... I think it sticks because it's successful. In other words, the act... Mm-hmm. succeeds because um, because it doesn't yield inconsistencies in practice 
mm-hmm. after the adoption of that implicit definition until the late 19th century when it does well but well but okay so was that inconsistency though or well, actually no it, not then it was actually later with the special relativity um yeah but see but that's not even really inconsistency as much as we just realized it was false it was that's what i meant it's, yeah oh okay the stipulation is inconsistent with what we know to be true about oh space. okay sure right but yeah the non-euclidean geometer uh stipulates alternatively uh-huh obviously always inconsistent with euclidean geometry but internally yes. consistent okay consistent with physical space although in a peculiar way until later it turns out not to be so peculiar um so i think what's going on here is that there are simply alternative linguistic communities mm-hmm. um, to which obviously one person can belong to both right um as many a mathematician does exactly uh so community may not be the best word let's call them practices linguistic practices you can engage in both practices though not at the same time with the same words right on Um, pain of equivocation (laughs) exactly uh so but that's okay for you because you think that stipulation is just how mathematics proceeds or you have a linguistic theory of mathematics or something well I mean, I don't know if you want to call the implicit definition proposal of Boghossian analyticity a linguistic theory of truth. I wouldn't say that. The truth yeah, no, maker he remains... Yeah, he doesn't want to present it that way either, yeah. Because right. he's trying to get away from... It's actually trying to get away from that. Yeah, and, 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 and he I... He leaves it open, I guess. Right? Well, no, With it's the... not open. He wants to say metaphysical analyticity is bogus. Right. And and I'm, I know no, I, no, I mean open what the mathematical object or logical object as he calls it is. Yeah, correct. Yeah, right. Except in this case, it isn't a mathematical. Sorry, it isn't a logical object. It's mm-hmm. space. It's oh distance, sure yeah. Right? And those actually, and this is something I'm only just now beginning to realize. Uh huh. It is alternatively, and perhaps both in some sense. Perhaps there remains or is introduced here an equivocation in that space is both physical and mathematical. Right. Though obviously it can't be both yeah, at the same time. It's difficult because sentence. in some sense, people may not have been forced to disambiguate at all in the first place. Right, right. Until these alternative geometries. Uh, exactly. And so were, there was a long custom yeah. of not even seeing an ambiguity. And then suddenly you're forced to understand it in terms of this ambiguity in order to be able to admit of both Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometries as internally consistent in mathematical uh, sources of but theorems and truths. But, it, but it's a strange, it's a really strange kind of ambiguity because because what it is, is it's an ambiguity be, between something uh, physical, concrete, and the like, causally relevant, and something not. The ambiguity is between space as a physical thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why is and that strange? Space as an abstract, because uh, it's not clear why. I guess it, it. I think it's strange because it's not clear why why there should have been, why should there have been such an ambiguity between things that are so. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think that they could possibly be relevant to the same contexts if one 
um, is completely causally <laughs> isolated from you. I mean, like, in in what sense could you have ever confused them? Like I, yeah. It's, I, it's a deep question. Yeah, I, 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 think I, know, I think I know where you're coming from. And and, and I think I have nothing to say. Okay, all right. <laughs> I mean, I have plenty to say, but nothing yeah. that I could fit into the next yeah, 15 be, minutes. Beyond the scope of this podcast, as they say. Oh, I hate it when people do I that. know. God. You know, yeah. actually, I heard a no, wait, philosopher wait, wait, wait. once I say... When, wait, when people write papers, right? Yeah. And they say... I would like to say more, but this is beyond the scope. There's not enough space in this paper. You know, but the same journal has 10-page papers <laughs> and 50-page papers. Sure, sure. Well, this isn't always said by the 50-pagers, right? Yeah. So I just don't know where they get off on doing this. It's yeah. Like, can't you just say, I don't want to? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Or, or that it would not be part of the organic unity of this Oh, world. my God. The organic <laughs> unity. Wow, there's a throwback. <laughs> organic what you were saying? Unity. Yeah, right, but I was saying. Um, yeah, it's... This is definitely something to take up when we address philosophy of math. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a, a thing that I think is just left extremely open by Bogosian in this paper. He does. Uh, I mean, he hints at... Um, I mean, he does mention conceptual world semantics, and we happen to also yes. have been thinking about causal world semantics... I mean, explicitly, you've mentioned it by way of the externalism, but just more broadly, um, you know, it's it's in the it's in the you know it's in the conversation, right? Um, but this also raises another question, which is implicit definition here is introduced to address logical truth. Yeah, but um, but earlier in the paper, uh, we considered a few examples of uh, analytic truths. That were not obviously Frege analytic, or of a priori truths that were not necessarily, or not obviously Frege analytic. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and uh, and the whole upshot of this is that it's supposed to. Oh, by the way, by that by that I mean they weren't logical truths or uh, truths of logic by way of synonymy. Exactly. So neither of those, yeah. but also not, you know, simple uh, observation supported theoretical truths. Yeah. Or empirical truths. Somewhere in between. Right. So so if it is somewhere in between, then to what extent can we broaden the scope of the applicability of implicit definition? Exactly, yeah. I mean, if, if it seems as though it works really well for logic, but uh, and then extending it to math may be one thing as well, because math seems to be abstract. Um, but then there's a further extension to bachelors and marriage. And yeah, then and yet warmer and, yeah, and yet a further extension, um, because bachelor, the term bachelor and the term un, or phrase unmarried man, are synonyms, and so they could oh, be and so they could be substituted, right, um, to tr- make a logical truth, um, and so that's so the uh, yeah so that's a frig analyticity, but the three examples that Bogosian gives earlier of the non frig analytic a priori statements are yeah even further afield yeah uh, and don't seem to and, and and he introduces them so that he can bring up carnap and and carnap's take on implicit definition as a way to as a way to uh, the meaning postulates as a way to explain their a priori so he i think that he that bogosian thinks it should extend that far right um but, but he doesn't <laughs> actually take it there no he doesn't uh, so what happens if we do like suppose suppose we were to stipulate the truth that 
warmer than is an anti-symmetric relation. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we do this by way of implicit truth, it would be, mm-hmm. we'd have various forms. Actually, sure. it would just be that one sentence, right? Yeah. If X is warmer than Y, then Y is not warmer than X. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, or you can just, I mean, there's many ways you might do it. You might say it's an asymmetric relation. You might say it's a simple order, and you might say it's this scale and point to <laughs> yeah some scale or something or or have a model of a scale um and any of those might serve i had a conversation with uh christine's daughter Mm -hmm. she's she was i don't even remember let's just say eight years old okay okay and i had an argument with her about (laughs) (laughs) in good socratic fashion i'm I'm relentless i know you are uh I, i had an argument with her about uh how you can get so cold that it can't get colder. And she said, that can't be. That can't be because you can always just make it colder. You can just take away more heat. Like with an air conditioner. Oh, wow. That's, that's right? very clever. Yeah. Yeah. So what was she doing? I mean, she was basic, And, I, and I, I, I accepted what she was saying in the sense that I knew it was derived from, you know, a logical extension to what she took to be a theory of temperature or heat right. or temperature, I guess. Yeah. Um, but then I explored with her without giving her the science, uh, which um, I didn't think I'd be able to put together for an eight-year-old. I have no idea what eight-year-olds know. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't matter. The yeah. point is, I chose not to go there, and instead wanted to explore whether I could pers- persuade her of the plausibility that um, that there is a coldest point. Yeah. And so I said, all right, just imagine you're standing on a chair and I ask you to go to the lowest point of your body. It'll be where your feet are. But what's lower than your feet? Well, below the chair, right? Okay, well, that's fine. But what if you're not on a chair? Is there a lower point? And she said, well, yeah, you just go into the ground. I said, okay. That didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And I tried to come up with various things, but no matter what, she was fixated on this idea that there's a scale, and the scale is infinite in both directions. Wow. And what's amazing, amazing is that it really is infinite in the other direction. Right, right. <laughs> well, so not wrong there. Yeah. And what argument did I really have? Uh, I could think of nothing without going into, you know, physics. Like, yeah, right, yeah. Um, so It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and so the point is... This is she, like an object lesson in, you know, issues of conceivability and possibility. Yeah. And <laughs> oh, we got to do that too. Uh, TMTR. Yeah, uh, exactly. But so so what I thought, so I think what's, what was going on here is that she had accepted a stipulative truth of implicit definition for warmer than. I mean, here we have the example of the antisymmetry of warmer than. What she had was the infinite extension of the scale. Right. In both directions. Yeah. But why did she accept that? You know, where did she get that? Obviously, it's implicit, right? But where, where did she get it? Yeah. Well, she got it from the practice, the everyday practice of always, of noticing that it can always be colder. Right. And it can always be warmer. Yeah. Simple enough. Right? Yeah. Uh, so there you go. And yet it's false notice. Right? Right. It's this a priori truth is actually false. Yeah. So it's not a priori. Well, actually, is that true? I guess it would have been a priori if it had been true. Is that right? 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, potentially, yeah. Uh, uh, but it certainly is not true. So it's not a priori true either. Well, yeah, it's definitely not a priori true. And it's uh, defeated by... Well, defeated by empirical yeah, by just results. various historical experiments. And, yeah. And, and now our theoretical... I mean, if you understand heat and temperature in terms of statistical mechanics, uh, you simply don't have that stipulation. You have a different stipulation. But perhaps yeah. that's not really a stipulation. Now, see, this is, I think this, this is might tricky, be right? Quine's point. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 there is no principal distinction between these stipulative truths and, well, your theories. Your various theories, whatever your various they may theories, be. yeah. The theories and yeah. the auxiliary statements or the... Right. Yeah. Now, by this, I don't mean to say that Boghossian analyticity falls to two dogmas, but, but I do want to explore it. I do want to say that... Yeah. Let's put it this way. If it stands, it's got to be because the stipulating of truths so as to provide for implicit definitions has to be something other than the hypothesizing of truths in the course of scientific inquiry. Yeah, I get it. Like, in other words, the, the function of the stipulation can't be to hypothesize that it's true. Right. Uh, it because, really is just something doing something else. Yeah, it has um, to be, uh, to some degree, performative. Yeah, uh, because otherwise it's just another hypothesis. Exactly, uh, um, and, and it's, it's very it's, clear in logic that that works. Right, it's just not so clear it works in anything else. Yeah, and maybe that's why he wanted to stay away from it. Yeah, it's not so clear it works in anything else, and and yet it obviously does. I think, like I can stipulate quite comfortably that brothers are siblings. Uh huh. There isn't any experiment that will show me otherwise. Yeah. Right. I mean, even if it were proven there aren't any brothers, I'd still say brothers are siblings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very tricky. And I mean, if you were to, I mean, I'm trying to think of whether or not it's wasn't there some something about vixens and foxes? Yeah, this is Putnam uh, right. again. I know. He did everything. Yeah, he just, he just keeps coming up. <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember where I saw it. Um, it was in some YouTube. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was interviewed by the Moscow um, oh, right. University Center for Consciousness. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the last interviews. interviews he did. It was just like the year before he died. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I'm sure it's referenced to some argument that he wrote elsewhere. No, um, it's something that somebody told him. Oh, actually. really? I think it was Charles Travers. Charles Travers. Travers or Travis? I can never. I never. It's never sure. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But that's... he's one of the contextualists. Okay. Yeah. That sounds. It sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, but I forget. I forget exactly what the argument was. But yes, it was something like that. It was something like a stipulation, much like brothers or siblings, mm-hmm. that then gets undone by a particular experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth revisiting. I'll, I'll try to find it. Um, Anyway, um, we'll include the link in the show notes when we when we find it. Oh, good. Yeah, I'll make a note to include it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, if you don't mind. Um, there is. I want to close it out by reading um, the a quote by a quote from Quine, which isn't in the Bogosian paper, but is in one of the papers that Bogosian refers to, namely Carnap and Logical Truth. Yeah, actually, before we get to that, I wanted to say something just a little bit more about. Um, stipulation and implicit definition with respect to things like uh, 
Well, like the examples that Bogosian gave that were problematic, that were not obviously Frege analytic. I think that things, that sentences and uh, words may potentially um, sort of become a priori or not relative to certain contexts. Like, it may be that after a certain amount of theory uh, has been done with respect to heat, that uh, the meanings of the terms are fixed well enough that our that any competent language user will know those meanings and be able to uh, deploy them in inferences and stipulate truths about them sort of on the fly. Um, but that's only you know, sort of long after. Yeah, actually, I had a similar mean? idea when yeah. I was talking about, sorry, Fodor and special science. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so, for example, you might have a theory of economics Okay. Um, that's, you know, just imagine like a 18th century or not earlier, like a 17th century or an early 18th century theory of economics that says, you know, the king should do this and uh, the agricultural uh, industry should, not industry, what am I saying? <laughs> industry. <laughs> Sector. Sector. Yeah. <laughs> the farmers, okay. Yeah. The, the farmers should do this and the king should do that and the knights and the soldiers and the armies should do something else and buy and sell and etc. right? But then you fast forward uh, and then you got neoclassical mathematics looking sorry neoclassical economics looking like a mathematical theory and once it's at that level you've abstracted the notion of a firm mm. that of a buyer and a seller yeah that of money that of a commodity of production of consumption and it's just mathematics at that point uh because if it turns out that there aren't any buyers that there aren't any sellers and that there isn't any money according to the strict mathematical definitions I shouldn't say mathematical. According to the strict stipulative truths at the foundation of this theory, um, as perhaps maybe suggested by behavioral economics, then that doesn't invalidate the economic theory so much as it might have in the past. Mm -hmm. Instead, it renders it less applicable or mm -hmm. less relevant. But it's got so much of an internal consistency that it now stands on its own. Is that what you have in mind? Mm -hmm. Anyway, that is what I had in mind. Okay, yeah. Special sciences. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the difference between what I said and what you said is that mine uh, suggests a kind of departure from reality as a consequence of this independence. Yeah. Whereas you were thinking that it's because of the fixity of the reliability of these inferences that you have both the stipulative character to the truth mm -hmm. and... The truth itself. But, well, yeah, exactly, yeah. And the stipulative character is really just what ensures one's justification in ordinary conversation. Um, right. Because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but uh, as language evolves over time, our meanings aren't necessarily informed by science, I think. Right. Um, Huh. At least if, insofar as we're rational anyways. <laughs> always that, always that. Yeah, and, and it's interesting also because I think this happens the other way around as well. So there's a famous example 
um, from Putnam, and I think his paper on the analytic and synthetic, um, which is to do with kinetic energy. So initially, kinetic energy was simply defined to be half mv squared, right, uh, by Leibniz, I think, or maybe somebody before Leibniz, I can't remember who it was. But, um, I mean, of course, now we know that's wrong <laughs> after Einstein. Uh, but it was just a definition initially. Yeah. You just defined energy as this quantity. Right. So how could it be wrong? Or was there no such thing? <laughs> well, I think this is, again, Quine's point. <laughs> yeah, right. I oh, know. Yeah. Shit, did we just convince ourselves to go back to... Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a hairy scenario. It's, I it's think just... they're both right. Yeah. I think they both have to be right. There's a sense in which, yeah. well, everything's revisable. And yeah. I don't think Bethesian right, is right, really right. opposing that. No, I don't think so either. Um, but, okay, so maybe this is it. There is there's a way to accept both total revisability yeah. and... Uh, a purely semantic justification, mm-hmm. right, for some claims. Okay. That's Pure, it. Yeah. Oh, you know what it is? Revisability of something that is purely semantic makes no sense. Because if it is purely semantic, there's nothing moving there's there's nothing forcing the change right that's that's the old view right, right. that's the quinean view yeah uh but that assumes meaning holism oh i see right yeah so if instead the revisability uh is in well the forces bringing about revisability may however be indirect that is um there may be so much pressure put upon your you know doxastic state yeah that you simply find yourself wanting to re-stipulate certain truths. Mm-hmm. But until you do, they stand. Right. And as such, remain a priori. Yeah. The fact that there's incentive, as if economically, the fact that there's incentive for revisability doesn't mean that it revises itself. Yeah, no, right. And revision is something that we do. Right. And insofar as we do it, we kind of, we, we, we have the assurance of truth both before and after the revision because we stand on the correct side before and after. They're both correct, basically. Mm. I mean, with respect to their uh, respective stipulative truth implicit definitions. Yeah, well, they're both justified, at least. I mean, there's all, there was always the question as to whether we were wrong or right, right? But... Uh, well, um, but I'm here I'm assuming a shift that doesn't require either side to be wrong. Okay. Um, but yes, that can also happen. Sure. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah but it's tricky because, I mean, it, it seems as though in certain kinds of mm, contextual shifts that are not easily specifiable... A claim's status may go from a priori to a posteriori. And it may be out of your hands. Yeah, right. It may be out of your hands, yeah. Like, for example, take The Bachelor, right? Suppose we're living in the 1950s Mm -hmm. and going to philosophy seminars, and we unproblematically assert that bachelors are unmarried males, Mm -hmm. right? And then some some wise-ass brings up the Pope. Yeah. Okay. 
and then also shares papers by uh, Mr. White and Mr. Quine. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Then what do you do? I think the proper thing to do is to revise and say, okay, a bachelor isn't merely an unmarried male, mm-hmm. but rather it's an unmarried male eligible for marriage. Okay, that's better. Yeah. But what does that mean? Does that mean that you were wrong about the Pope being a bachelor before the revision, before the new stipulation? In a sense, no, because if the truth about if the truth about bachelors is is uh, is stipulated, then you might say you have to translate from one meaning of bachelor to the next before yeah. and after the stipulation. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if the usage is out of your hands and you find yourself calling the Pope a bachelor among people who've already moved on, mm-hmm. they will take you incorrectly in translation. And it's oh, not right. entirely yeah. clear that you're within your, if you want to speak this way, linguistic rights to heed your own prior or rather, you know, your reduced community uh, stipulation. A more contemporary example might be marriage itself, you know. Uh, right, yeah, exactly. Much of the fight about gay marriage was about having to find the word. Yeah. Uh, and the courts even recognized it as such by saying that the meaning of marriage has changed over time. What they really meant is that the meaning of, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. It's both the meaning of the institution and the meaning of the word that had changed over time. Right. But it wasn't up to the courts to make those stipulations. No, yeah. It was effectively being done collectively. It was only up to them to judge whether or not... (laughs) It had actually succeeded. Yeah, it had happened. Yeah. Yeah, So that's what they were judging. They were judging whether the stipulative redefinition of the term and of the institution had actually taken place. Right. Uh, Which is, I guess... I don't even know how you would evaluate something like that, but... Um, they did, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, yeah. that's that's interesting because it means um, that the sensitivity to evidence, uh, to experience, is unlike uh, the sensitivity by non-stipulated truths. Mm. It isn't exactly the same. Yeah, it's not because exactly it the involves same. a speech act. In the other case, it does not. Right. And there is a collectivity to it, but there's also an individual element to it. You know, you can be, you can have recalcitrant dialectical usage. Yeah, right. You know, sure. I mean, you know, Vikishnam be damned. You could do your own thing. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that nobody that uh, nobody could ever possibly learn your language. It's just right, that of course. perhaps you're curmudgeonly or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Get <laughs> off, get off my language, linguistic lawn. You know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and we see that all the time. Uh, uh, my language game is a solitary one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I understand myself. It's good enough. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't want to press that too far because yeah. there is something to be said for the social, um, well, the essentially yeah. social element of language. Yeah, or the, I mean, this is a big theme actually in in the history of the philosophy of language uh, post-Wittgenstein, but there's also a, a variety of different flavors of it, right? So Putnam has the linguistic division of labor. Uh, Davidson has triangulation yeah, they're definitely you know, talking about this, and uh, but but not Burge in the same ha- way. And Birch has his uh, anti-individualism, right? As right. it's just explicitly called anti-individualism is the I name of the paper. I guess that's what rubs right? me the wrong way about all this stuff. It's sure. like 
They're trying to socialize me. <laughs> and I mean, I'm no libertarian, but I do have my. Uh, it's just the gadfly in you. <laughs> uh, maybe. I guess it just doesn't count if it's not coming from me, um, mm. or at least processed through me. Okay, I don't sure. know. Sure, it's this is a sensitive topic. Okay, yeah. Uh, All right. Let's. I, I want to close out with the coin quote, or is there okay. something else? No, that's it. I was. Yeah. Okay, so we saved this for last because I, I have this stinking suspicion that uh, Quine might get the last laugh. Um, though I haven't decided yet because I haven't thought about it. I just saved the quote. So here it is. Uh, in Carnap and Logical Truth, which is uh, cited by Boghossian as one of, the, one of the sources for the challenge to analyticity, yeah. specifically to metaphysical analyticity, but really for both. Um, he says, The distinction between the legislative and the discursive refers, refers thus to the act and not to its enduring consequence, in the case of postulation, as in the case of definition. Conventionally, uh, you know what? I I, 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 I I totally did this wrong. Uh, the emphasis was wrong. I'm going to start over. The distinction between the legislative and the discursive refers thus to the act and not to its enduring consequence in the case of postulation, as in the case of definition. Conventionality is a passing trait, significant at the moving front of science, but useless in classifying the sentences behind the lines. It is a trait of events, not sentences. Okay, well, that's a perfect example of yeah. Klein being just awesome. That's awesome sauce. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just so beautiful. Oh my God, it says so, it says so much. Too. And, it's, and it's so <laughs> dense. It's so dense. Okay, so what's, what's really going on here? Uh, legislative versus discursive is... Legislative means the stipulative truths. Right. Okay. Exactly. And discursive is just everything else. Right. It's yeah. just conversing. Exactly. Um, conversing, judging, yeah. And he says... And it says the difference refers thus to the act. Not the enduring consequence. Okay, so the enduring consequence is the semantics of the terms, mm-hmm. and the act is the act of, stipulative, of, of stipulating the meaning. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and... Okay. And then conventionality here is, again, the implicit definition, uh, or rather logical truth by implicit definition, though by using the word conventionality, he's implying that conventionalism is a attendant or, uh, you know, an attendant consequence. And it may or may not be, Mm -hmm. right? Depending on whether Boghossian analyticity works. Well, if by conventionality, he he just means something uh oh maybe it's not conventional something practical yeah no he might okay maybe i spoke too soon okay yeah conventionality is a passing trait uh a trait of what well namely the stipulative aspect of that truth yeah because he says it's a it's a it's a trait of events and not sentences and the idea is the event is the act i think uh human actions yeah so it's well no linguistic actions no i i mean yes but i think it's not just of it's not of the event of the stipulation. I think it's the event of everything that is occurring at the front lines of science. The entire right. the entire front lines yeah. is the event. Yeah. And um, the sentences behind the lines are basically uh, the language used by people who are not privy to the whole process. Right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, recently Pluto was demoted. Right. Right. Uh, and that is because some astronomer somewhere 
well, uh, a bunch of them, um, together decided on the stipulative truths concerning planets and dwarf planets. And um, these stipulations uh, were, revi were revisionary, and as such, um, Pluto was now in a different category. Right. We didn't learn anything about Pluto. Um, you know, the size and the orbit and the shape is exactly what we thought it was before this change. But to everyone else uh, who just, you know, learns about this stuff on YouTube and not, right. not right. because we're at uh, the Harvard Astronomy Laboratory, um, or is it Observatory? <laughs> yeah, actually, was the wasn't uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson involved in this? No, I'm pretty sure he was, like one of the people influential in, oh. in affecting the shift. Yeah, that's interesting. Towards the new, uh, well, even so, the new convention. Even so, the Hayden Planetarium. Yeah, even so, it would be in his capacity as an astronomer and not as a popularizer. Right. No. 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 Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So anyway, um, the rest of us are behind the lines. Right. So when we start talking about Pluto as right. a dwarf planet, not a planet, we're not, you know, we're, we're not uh, part of the event. We're not part of the stipulation. And so for that reason, perhaps it's not, um, it's not a conventional truth for us. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just being informed. Right. As we might be of the mass of Pluto. Yeah. So what does that mean? I, I, I think. I think the point here is that you can only really stipulate truths if you are somehow in the same position as, or rather, you can only re-stipulate meanings if you're in the same position as those who stipulated them to begin with. Of course, you can. Put oh, in the same position, yeah, yeah. exactly. You can yeah. put yourself in the position. You don't have right. to be sort of invited to the club or anything. Yeah. But but there has to be a sense in which you're part of that end of the game. Uh-huh. Otherwise, yeah. And I wonder if this has any significance. I, I, I think it surely has to do with... Uh, Fine's idea of the continuity of science and philosophy. Mm, yes, it's just, I think you know, that's right. I yeah. think it's too easy these days to think about science as an institution and as a profession, but it, it what he's, I think what uh, Quine would probably endorse is that it's, it's something that, it's human activity, something that you do that any of us might end up doing. Right. <laughs> no, but I thought you were after something also, that's also a good point. I thought you were after that the the moment in which these astronomers are yeah, yeah. making stipulations about words like planet and dwarf planet, they are interfacing with uh, with well common knowledge more broadly speaking, mm -hmm. but also philosophical concerns. Yeah, I think I that's mean, I think that's I mean, right as well. It's not deep philosophy; it's the philosophy of planets. But <laughs> but, it's, but it's, yeah. it's still something. Yeah, and and as such. Um, I don't know. I think I don't really have. I don't really have an observation here to close out with, other than that I'm sure there's something to connect this insight with Bogosian analyticity. Well, let's ask this: Is Quine here supporting Bogosian analyticity? Is Quine saying, "Yeah, you can do stipulative truths. You can implicitly define dwarf planet. Just uh, don't get the wrong idea about when it can be done and yeah. who's doing it." And 
what the consequences what of the it conse- are. Yeah. So maybe this is the, the point. idea that the consequences are permanent or something. Yeah. Maybe maybe this maybe this is the point. You can call anything a dwarf planet or anything a planet if you're in the small committee, that's just dreaming this stuff up. Yeah. But if you find out about the terms a year later, and by then millions of people know, then uh, you can't alter the truth by stipulation. Because now it's part of the larger theory. Yeah. Now it's embedded in everything that we know about how many dwarf planets there are, how many planets there are. Yeah, it's uh, entrenched, as Goodman would say. <laughs> yeah. It's just part right. of the theory. Exactly, yeah, it's just part of the theory. In other words, this principled distinction between analytic and synthetic, synthetic truths is available at the event of stipulation. But after that, they're all synthetic. Barring... Uh, synonymy by way of common meaning tokens but but quine gave up on that so it doesn't really matter right yeah (laughs) does that sound right maybe yeah it's possibly right i mean yeah all right well with that we leave you all right till next time Bigfoot is blurry. That's the problem. It's not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry. And that's extra scary to me.